0: Frank Rietta is the CEO of Rietta.com, a security-focused web application firm. He's a web application security architect, expert witness, author, and speaker. Frank joins us to discuss secure coding with Ruby on Rails. We get into a discussion about Ruby on Rails versus other languages, primary threats, counters to those threats, and tools available for the Ruby on Rails developer to assist with security. We hope you enjoy this conversation with... Frank Rietta. At Security Journey, we believe security is every developer's job. We work with our customers to help them build long-term, sustainable security culture amongst all their developers. Our approach is to provide security education that's conversational, quick, hands-on, and fun. We don't do lectures. Instead, we let the experts talk about what's important. Modules are quick, 10 to 20 minutes in length. We believe in hands-on experiments, builder and breaker style, that allow your developers to put what they learned into action. And lastly, fun. Training doesn't have to be boring. We make it engaging and fun for the developers. Visit www.securityjourney.com to sign up for a free trial of the Security Dojo. hey folks welcome to this episode of the application security podcast this is chris romeo one of the hosts and also ceo of security journey Uh, robert's not with us today but i am happy to be joined by frank who is going to talk to us about ruby on rails security but before we get there we have to ask the question that everybody is sitting maybe they're driving in a car So they're not sitting on the edge of their seat, maybe they're sitting on the edge of the car seat, whatever, wherever they are. But Frank, how did you get into this crazy, wacky world that we know of as application security?
1: Okay, Chris, thanks for having me. Um, So my name is Frank Rietta, and I have been self-employed for 21 years, which is not, maybe doesn't sound that impressive, except I'm only 38 years old. So this has been a good part, in fact, my entire career. So how did I get into security? How did I get into owning a web development firm that focuses on security uh, is an interesting story. So um, I have been programming every single day. I mean, there might've been a day here or there that I wasn't feeling well, but you know, for the large part, every day since I was 14. I just fell in love with coding. Um, at the time, I was actually on like a, Uh, Epson Equality 2, which was a DOS machine from the 80s, because even though my family had a 486 with Windows 3.1, I wasn't allowed to really mess with it. So I spent all my time on the computer I could mess with. Um, So coding, you know, popping some assembler and stuff, learning a lot of those skills fairly early on, self-taught from books. Um, fast forward a little bit, and uh, this was the late 90s, like 98, 99, and the web was really starting to take off. And, and being that I was into programming and a little web dev, um, I started a web hosting company, first as a reseller, and then I went to my mom. Again, I was under 18 years old, so I couldn't do this on my own. And my mom, for some reason, let me charge a Dell PowerEdge server on her credit card. And so I started racking and stacking equipment in a, in a local data center and, and marketing uh, uh, hosting services. And, it, and so this was before I went to college. And uh, turns to find out that if you take Red Hat 6.2 and put it on the Internet, it was compromised pretty quickly. Okay, so I cleaned that up. I start learning how to lock down Red Hat Linux. And so I ran that company for all the way, finishing out high school, undergraduate Georgia Tech. I did study computer science. And I sold it right before I graduated in 2005. Um, I sold the web hosting business, AtlantaWebhost.com. But um, in that time of running that, I got to see like the dirty underbelly of society you know, carding, hacking, you know, constantly attacking the servers I was running and my customers. And it quite frankly made me mad. And so since I had just graduated Georgia Tech and I had just sold a business, which, you know, wasn't a tremendous sum of money by, you know, my standards now, you know, it was more money than I'd had at one time for like ever up to that point. So I went ahead and went to grad school. And uh, I did uh, Georgia Tech's information security program, GTSC. Um, it's now security and privacy. And so I studied, I have a master's in information security, and uh, I went the policy track on that. And this was early. So Georgia Tech got certified by the NSA as being an academic center of excellence. And and they had a, a lot of a very traditional network security approach. So when I came out of that, um, the career op opportunities that were kind of natural progression were to you know go work for the government and and trust me these are great jobs life would have been different as an fbi agent or a cia analyst or whatever the uh that career path would have been um but i didn't choose that path and the other was to go work in like you know the issa has a lot of members that are you know stodgy well-heeled corporate enterprise but i was a linux dude you know I'd been using Linux and FreeBSD and so the thought of going and admining Windows networks for security was just like death I, I, that really did not appeal to me and so I ended up falling back into web dev um, picked up some PHP jobs um, started doing more and more and ultimately built a business on the theory that you can't bolt security on at the end and since the the decisions that lead to insecurity are made when the company that has them is in its infancy when the first code is being written. And so my theory was, well, if I learn how startups work and get in very early in doing development, then I can move the needle a lot for these companies before they even have a problem. Uh, It turns out that that's nice. In theory, the practice, there's like time to market and cost benefit analysis. But, um, But I still believe firmly you have to Build security in. You can't bolt it on at the end, and um, and so yeah, that that was sort of that propelled into the last nine years of owning a firm that does a lot of Ruby on Rails development and um, security auditing and consulting now too.
0: So when you think about the knowledge that you acquired on the application security side, it sounds like you had a lot of almost school of hard knocks type of approach to learning by you know starting the web hosting company getting things hacked, which is, I mean, in in all actuality, a great way to learn. I had a similar experience um, when I was in college and my first Linux server was hacked. And I got to experience incident response in the early 90s when nobody really knew kind of what that was. But that's a story for a different day. But when you think about kind of the knowledge that you have acquired uh, in the world of application security, what's the primary way that you've done that? Um, what are the, what are the types of resources and things you went after in case somebody's listening right now and they're thinking, well, I have a similar story here, or, you know, I'm a dev- I was a developer for a long time and now I want to get into security. What were some of the things that you did to be successful?
1: You know, when I was starting this stuff, OWASP was just in its infancy, right? I mean the, I think the first top 10 was around 2003 and, and, and a lot of that was, um, you know, buffer overflows and stuff. And and that shifted. And so, in my early days, a lot of it was there there weren't the resources there are today, and if there were the resources they they were very um expensive and I think early on uh when I was at the Georgia Tech program, we had these capture the flag um uh events um, It was um I think u c Santa Barbara and a bunch of universities ran a, a VPN together. CTF, And um, one of the things I learned early on was, you know, definitely from the web hosting days, a little bit earlier was um, don't assume everyone who uses your application is going to be for good. I think as developers, it's very easy to focus on the happy path. And as organizations, when you're writing like feature requests and stuff, it's very easy to ask, but why would anyone ever do that? And, and so having that mindset is the first one. And so anyone who's listening here probably already has checked that box of having a security mindset. Um, but but today is not like the mid 2000s. Right now we have the OWASP, we have the OWASP top 10, we have the ASVS, we have uh, the cheat sheets, like all these are Great resources for understanding not only common vulnerabilities, but also like patterns that you can do in your work uh, to harden your application against these threats. Um, And so I would say avail yourself of the open materials. Um, There are others. I don't want to list off names. I'm not casting disparages against some of the more enterprise-focused tools, but I like open source. I like OWASP and the resources that the organization has been able to make public. And so I'd say start there, um, would be my answer to your question.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's great advice for somebody who's brand new, uh, who may be coming to this podcast interview via the development path and is, is thinking about, hey, this security thing seems kind of cool. We've just give, you've given you some great guidance on where, where they can go. So let's, let's get to our primary topic. I, I, one
1: step, I, I will say like, I did an informal survey about two years ago on the Tech 404 slot community, which is a kind of Atlanta area. So these are paid professional developers, like they're paid to write code. I don't have the graph in front of me, but it was depressing. It was like maybe half of them had even heard of the OWASP top 10.
0: Yeah, that is a pretty depressing. So
1: there's a lot of just simply having that knowledge is already taking you to the right path.
0: Well, let's get into specifically Ruby on Rails here. And I'm going to pretend that we have some people um, that are listening that that may not be as familiar with Ruby on Rails as as I am. And I'm going to just ask you that kind of general question. What is Ruby on Rails? So Ruby itself,
1: I'm going to answer it in two parts, one Ruby and then Ruby on Rails. Uh, Ruby is a beautiful programming language. And I'm saying this as a computer scientist. Ruby is a fully object-oriented programming language on the order of small talk. Everything is an object. And uh, that is a paradigm that we lost for a little while. Um, From the 80s into the 90s, we started having a lot of um, the C-style languages uh, started to really take over. And as computers got faster, and the Ruby has been around since the 90s, and it became a popular scripting language um, uh, on the Unix side. Um, if you ever use FreeBSD, you may remember the ports collection with the port upgrade utilities were written in Ruby. If you ha- work in um, security and you know of Metasploit, you may think that Metasploit is written in Ruby. It is. And so it's this beautiful programming language. Um, purely object oriented the number four is an object it responds to messages you can override them Um, everything is a message the divide character is a message there's no there's hardly any language special features and that has lots of interesting properties as a programmer Um, rails ruby on rails uh, was invented originally by a gentleman of the name of david hannah hansen uh, and it was written for Basecamp. what's now called Basecamp, was built on top of it. And uh, it has evolved along that. And it created um, a platform to build web applications that standardized and solved many of the common plumbing that is necessary to have a web application so that as a developer, you don't have to focus on it at all. And at the time, and it had a very strong... Model View Controller approach, which is an excellent object-oriented design pattern for creating um, uh, software, and it was now you say, but .NET has MVC, but .NET MVC came after Ruby on Rails. But you know there is uh, Cake PHP or or, or uh, there are several PHP ones, but those came after Ruby on Rails, and so Ruby on Rails really redefined what it means to have a web application framework for productive creation of web applications. And a lot of those benefits have filtered into languages since then, um, have, um, have copied it in a sense, not necessarily bad copy, right? But like, we're so inspired by the benefits that their platforms have taken that approach as well.
0: And when you think about Ruby on Rails, a lot of people will say, ah, that's just for early stage startups. You know, it's something they use to to be able to build and deploy apps quickly. Um, what's what's kind of your response to that? Is Ruby just Ruby on Rails just for early stage startups?
1: I would say no, but I want to go back to another lesson. Um, if you're a student of computing and you go back to the '80s, Microsoft Excel was not the spreadsheet of the day. Uh, VisiCalc was, but then Lotus One Two Three was super strong, but then Excel took over. And the story goes, if I recall correctly, was Lotus was in the middle of a rewrite of their application for various reasons, and uh, rewrites never happen as fast as you think. And in that time, Microsoft slipped in and gained market share, and Lotus never recovered. So rewriting your software as a mid-stage or growth-stage startup can be a very bad idea. Um, for all sorts of reasons. So if you start on Ruby on Rails, you're very likely to wisely choose to stay on Ruby on Rails unless your scaling issue is uh, really unique. So Twitter famously started on Ruby on Rails, but then got off of Ruby on Rails because not because Ruby on Rails was slow, but it turns out you can't run Twitter at scale as a web application backed by a relational database. They had a very very niche specific communication platform need that had different engineering approach needed. There are other companies. Basecamp, obviously, is on Ruby and Rails, uh, and and others that they've created. Uh, Square, the credit card uh, uh, startup, uh, is on Ruby and Rails. Shop-lify? Shopify, Shopify. <laughs> is on Ruby on Rails I mean you can go down this list I don't know exhaustively off the top of my head but these are some massive companies doing a lot of business continuing to run on Ruby on Rails and that is not an issue for them it's still a good technology choice Um, I am I can't name names but I am directly aware of enterprises that have um, Ruby on Rails as part of their infrastructure like it may not be that they have a ton of stuff written, but some of their web services were written in Ruby on Rails. Um, And so those are something they have to support as part of their portfolio of applications. Um, I am aware we have on our client base several government agencies, uh, state government agencies that had custom software written in Ruby on Rails, and now their agencies uh, utilize this software heavily and so supporting it over long term. Is something that we help them with to make sure that it's kept up to date, that it's secured, you know, that it continues to function as you know new Rails versions come out. Um, so it's all over the place. I I don't have like market share figures in front of me, but it's out there and it's only growing.
0: I think it's it's more popular than most people think. I think people have a perspective of that Ruby on Rails is is that early stage startup thing that I mentioned. And I think, you know, I've, I've heard the same thing that, that you're sharing here that you know, there's a lot of big names that are using it. And so it's, it's going to only become more prevalent into the future. And so here's the million dollar question on the Application Security Podcast. Do you, as a practitioner, developer, and AppSec person who focuses on Ruby on Rails, do you consider Ruby on Rails to be secure?
1: Yes. Um, and I only... Hesitate for a moment, because like any platform, you can make insecure software Um, (laughs) quite easily. Um, But Ruby and Rails, as a platform, has a lot of things going for it. One, Rails itself has a lot of convention over configuration, and it comes with some really good defaults that have good security. Uh, Number two... The Ruby ecosystem has embraced test-driven development in a significant way. And that means that the software tends to be very well tested, which means that it can be updated very quickly. So one of the problems in other languages, other systems, is it takes us a long time to update software when you're afraid that it's going to break if you make any changes. Um, That is less of the case in a a Ruby on Rails application that has a lot of automated test coverage. Um, The gems, uh, there are a lot of very mature gems. So, for example, if you reach and grab devise to do your user authentication, then um, it's going to come with a lot of good defaults and it's going to come with bcrypt. And so you may not, as a Rails developer, you may have never heard of bcrypt and why that's how you should hash your passwords, but your passwords were hashed with bcrypt. You never had the option of using sha 256, unless you just really reached into the innards and changed all the configurations and said, I want to go the stupid path. Like, you have to work at making it insecure in that way. Um, similarly, you get active record by default. When I do audits of Rails applications, I fairly seldom see SQL injection issues. Um, I'm not saying you can't make a SQL injection, of course you can, but the default is so strong at steering you down the path of doing it correctly that you just don't see that as often as you see in some other platforms. So I'm going to go with a yes. Ruby on Rails, by default, is one of the most practically secure platforms from the point of view of the OWASP top 10. I definitely see more, like, when I see issues, it tends to be, like, a... Access a business logic flaw or an access control issue, not a fundamental framework. Didn't know how to reject cross-site uh, request forgery because by default it even has cross-site request forgery protection built in. You have to fight it to turn it off.
0: Yeah, and that's that's always been the dream of the framework that we've all kind of wanted to see happen. In that you end up with a framework, and the framework locks you into def- secure defaults. That you really have to wiggle to get yourself out of, and I, I would say that's like the goal of like Spring uh, with Java. I don't think they're. I think they've done a lot of good stuff, but I don't think they're there. I don't. I don't think I mean, Spring doesn't lock you into that same scenario you described with password hashing, because you still have more more freedom to be able to do that in like a with Spring.
1: I mean, and don't get me wrong. You can do it, but like Ruby. It's it's not locking you in like here are handcuffs. You can do a lot of things with Ruby, but it's just like the culture and the tooling is so much. But here's the happy path. Don't you want to stay on the happy path?
0: And uh, that really does steer devs in a good direction. I mean, just with the example with password hashing, like that—that that is something that if I'm looking at that as a developer and I'm saying, "Well, this devise gem kind of package is is out of the box handling password storage for me." I would have to be crazy to say I'm gonna. I think I can do this better. Like I want to move on and do something else. Like we, I have other features that I need to deploy. I don't need to to solve password hashing if you're giving it to me in a default secure manner. And so that's one of the things that I think also is really cool about Ruby on Rails is that is that uh, that thought has gone into it, and it's like let's lock people in. Yes, they're not handcuffs, but you'd have to work. You'd have to work to <laughs> to work your way around that secure default which is how all secure defaults should be you know if somebody chooses to turn it off but it should be turned on by default if they choose to turn it off that's their that's on them that's their risk management process that's going to eat them for lunch at some point in the next 12 months Yep. so what about secure coding guidance so when i think about like the c language we have the cert c guide which is so well known across the industry like if, if you say, you know, where do I go to learn more about secure coding with C? Everybody points you to that cert website. Um, does Ruby on Rails have anything similar that's kind of like a de facto place you would send people?
1: So if you Google Ruby on Rails security, there's a security.html guide um, for on Rails that introduces you to a lot of the, the security countermeasures and stuff. Um, that is a good place to start. And then from there, there, there's a lot of material you can find on um, rail security. I've, I've started to see some more training materials coming out um, um, on it. Um, but if you start at that guide and you run some tools, uh, there's a tool, uh, a, 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 it's a gem called Breakman, which will scan your your Rails application and flag. It's a static analysis tool, so it will flag a lot of vulnerable patterns like, you know, you're using eval. You really shouldn't be using eval. Um, you know, there, you, you're, you're taking a string and you're smashing it in the middle of another string that's passed to SQL database. Like, that's really a bad idea. You know, it's going to flag a lot of those. And so uh, I would start with the guide and then kind of go from there um, and, um, and then run, set up your pipeline to run, you know, Breakman, to run Bundler Audit, um, to, to flag a lot of stuff. But the number one thing that I would teach, and this is different than a guide, this is a slightly different question, is um, really embrace writing automated tests as you go about doing your work. And so one of the nice things about that is when I write a test against a web application, we often write the happy path. But what I encourage you to do is to think about the things that could go wrong and to write a test for that, so a common example is, let's say I write a, uh, I have a controller action that uh, gives access, and there's an access control. So there's a concept of accounts. Um, so always write the test that says that a user B tries to edit user's A's document, and specifically gets an HT. P status error that is an unauthorized write that test so read the guides but start thinking about how you test security failures especially those business logic and those uh, those authentication errors that uh, the framework and in the scanners can't always detect for you
0: so I've read a couple of articles recently that have been talking about the fact that TDD or test-driven development seems to be kind of on the way out from a the perspective of development at a high level, looking down. And so, you know, you mentioned some other languages as well. And we think about, you know, with Java, C Sharp. You certainly can do TDD in that world. It's not as prevalent as what you're describing in Ruby on Rails. I mean, I would say you can, you can take that approach with any language. But from what I've seen, it, it, people are starting to grumble that TDD is on the way out. Do you think that is going to impact Ruby on Rails in any way? Or do you think it's so ingrained in how Rails works that it'll, it'll just continue?
1: I have a different opinion. I disagree I think it is short-sighted and foolish for industry to throw the baby out with the bathwater um, with testing. So I'm putting back on, and I know this isn't exactly your question. <laughs> Hopefully we'll get back to it, but I want to share this. Um, if you look at the history of computing and the trends that we're going, we are increasingly dependent upon um, web services and, and dependencies. Our dependency graphs are only growing. They're not shrinking. And that means that with every dependency added, you add brittleness and you add another source of failure, sometimes that are outside of your control. And so software systems are becoming harder to reason about, not easier. That DOS programming environment I was talking about learning to code on, it was really easy relatively to read the code and understand what was going on. A modern web application is very hard to know all the bits and pieces that can cause it to break. And so someone who advocates for the elimination of writing tests that can provide some confidence that the software continues to function in the face of change, I think is making an ill-advised trade-off for short-term gain for massive unsustainable technical debt payments in the future. Better would be to educate developers and to work on the culture to ask what's what's the most important things to test but but we do need to have a way of knowing the software continues to work. Um, Rails itself, I don't think will change in that regard because I think the culture is pretty well set. Um, and we can we can we can dig more into that. But I'll get off my soapbox. And I am not one of these people that are like, "How dare you not write the test before you write the code?" I can say, you know, this is a better way because. The best way to have software that continues to work in the face of change is to have sufficient automated tests to have confidence that it works now and will work tomorrow, and will work when a dependency's dependency is updated. And we need to find out if we can deploy again. Um, I can say that the best way to do that is to practice test-driven development, and the arguments are sound. But you know, I can say if you're like, well, I wrote the functionality and then I wrote a characterization test to show that given this input, I get this output. That's sensible. That's, that's not test-driven development, but that's sensible. Um, but what definitely does not pass muster is to say, eh, we're not going to test. It's too hard <laughs> um, because that that is very problematic.
0: Yeah. So when you think about security threats then, the primary security threats that face a Ruby on Rails application, what's, what's kind of on your short list of things that you're thinking about?
1: Oh, well is it a web application? Most rails applications are web. So all the threats that are typical amongst web apps. So just, you know, pull out your OWASP top 10 and start there. Uh, now, of course, if you are fine with all those, that does not mean that you don't have some exotic, um, threat against your system. Um, uh, that is true. So you start doing more sophisticated things like threat modeling and, uh, and, and more advanced testing, or maybe you engage, uh, Uh, a pen test uh, code review before pen test. If the first time that you are thinking about security is when you hire an external pen test firm, you are doing it wrong.
0: Well, this is you're you're on my soapbox now, Frank, come on. This is, you know, my, my big statement. I keep saying, I've been saying this whole year is you can't hack yourself secure. So same exact mindset that you're coming from here. So we, we share a soapbox. There we go.
1: Um, but back to your actual question, <laughs> <laughs> um, I look at the OWASP Top Ten, and I I definitely am concerned about those. I'm concerned about password security. So even though we use bcrypt by default, um, you know, detecting password stuffing attacks, you know, is a technical challenge at some scale. Um, you know, follow, knowing to go look into the NIST, what is it, 863b. Um, standards and, and, and start implementing um, there's a gem. <laughs> oh yeah there's a gem for that <laughs> um, there's a if you're familiar with have I been pwned um, and the work that Troy Hunt has done to 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 distribute uh, checking for known vulnerable passwords uh, known compromised passwords you can actually use that can what is it K anonymity method for checking if a user who's presenting a password um, is presenting one that is in that corpus. And you can do that without transmitting the password itself to the network. And you don't have to, unlike the first time that came out and uh, we actually imported all of Troy's SHA-1 hashes into the PostgreSQL database and checked that way. Uh, this <laughs> lets you, you, you utilize um, as a web service call. Um, and so that'd be a very good idea um, because I've more compromises of web applications come um, as a result of credential misuse than all of the sophisticated compromise vectors that are so much more fun to think about. But at the end of the day, if you don't handle the password issue, you don't have to worry about all that other stuff because you're going to get pwned anyway.
0: Okay. And so software supply chain. So you were um, in our kind of lead up to this interview. You were, you shared a story about some of the influence you've had on um, helping the software supply chain, the gem supply chain, uh, from a typo squatting perspective. So uh, tell us that story. Sure.
1: So rubygems.org is not the only way that gems gems can be distributed, but it's the primary way that gems are distributed publicly. And um, so it's, it's an open uh, repository. It's run by volunteers. And, uh, you know, hosting resources are donated by various sponsor companies. And, and you can go to rubygems.org and see who the sponsors are. And um, so turns out that there was several instances of attacks against RubyGems in the last couple of years to distribute malicious software. There's a few categories of these attacks. Uh, One type of attack that that has happened and was covered on our blog um, was something like the REST client gem, which is a known, valid, well-used gem. Uh, One of the maintainer's credentials were compromised, and someone took that to publish a malicious version of the gem Presumably, with the hope of users of REST client would update to the malicious version, and then there would be a backdoor to, you know, steal things. And usually, these these uh, payloads do something like take a cookie and then read it, and then if it has certain aspects to eval that code, so you can actually pop a re- remote code execution on the vulnerable uh, web application. Another type of attack is called a typo squat attack. And that's just like the main type of squatting where you, you don't have the maintainer's credentials for the legitimate gem, but you make a confusingly similar gem in the hopes that someone searching, because the main way to discover gems is to search Ruby gems or let's be real, to search Google, which then had indexed the Ruby gem page. And, oh, that's the one I want. And then you copy and paste it. And so by having a confusingly similar gym name, you could trick people into using yours instead of the legitimate one. And um, it turns out, so I started looking at this about a year ago, and it turns out that there's a lot of legitimate typo squats, meaning that most of the time that someone took a gym and added the number two at the end of it or changed a dash to an underscore, there was no obvious malicious intent. They were just like, well, they haven't updated that gym in a while, I want to contribute it, but to publish it, I have to change the name. I'll just change this little aspect of it. But there were malicious ones that got caught by eagle-eyed volunteers. Said, "Wait, why did this change?" And then you know, the alarm is raised, and you get the articles that come out about it, and the gem, malicious gem, gets yanked. And for a while, Ruby gems for the very popular gems, like we're talking, like Active Record, right, like Rails. To protect those from being typo-squatted, introduced a uh, a typo-squat protection technique based on the Levenstein distance. Which, if you uh, know how that works, it calculates the number of insertions in a string necessary to, to morph one string to the other. And so, this is used in spell checks, algorithms, and other things. And um, the challenge with it is that it has a lot of false positives, especially for short names. So like if you have a five character string and you have a different five uh four or five character string then the distance can be very low. So it's hard to set that threshold even if you set it to 1 or 2 you're going to have a lot of false positives. Well the way around that was to only check for like gems that had just like tons and tons of downloads. So there was a threshold here, a very high threshold. Well then another round of and that did worked but there was a lot of false positives and back in April, there was a major attack where something like 750 off the top of my head, I don't remember the exact number, gems were all by the same bad guy. Um, they were all squatted and with a malicious crypto-related um, payload. And, um, and a lot of them had well under that threshold. So if you looked at the compromised gems, uh, if we call it that, the victim gems, The data analysis showed that none of them were protected. So the protection worked if they tried, But presumably. But, I mean, there was hundreds of them that were under that threshold. And so I started looking at, is there a better approach? And uh, basically would download the nightly PostgreSQL dumps from RubyGems.org. I had a bunch of techniques experimenting with different ways of doing the queries, but I wanted a very fast query that could, that could check, and the technique that worked looking at the data was if a, a new gem cannot be the same name as an existing gem except for a variation of the dash and underscore characters. It does not catch everything, but it catches the vast majority of them and it can be indexed, which means it can be fast with PostgreSQL. So we can actually now check every gem against every other gem, and there's no longer that threshold that has to be part of it. And I worked with the uh, the maintainers of rubygems.org, and within the last month actually had a pull request merged in, and it's now part of rubygems.org, this protection um, that I worked on. And it replaced that previous levinstein distance f- method that was so problematic that they actually disabled it after this attack. And so there was a couple months where there was no protection at all until, until the one I worked on got merged in.
0: Very cool. So when you think about the tools that are in your Ruby on rails tool belt to, um, help from an application security perspective. You mentioned Breakman. you mentioned uh, Bundler Audit, which we, need to, we should talk about those a little bit more. But um, just walk us through kind of what tools are in that tool belt and kind of a high-level description of what each tool does.
1: Okay. Um, so I'm going to focus just on what we use, you know, bread and butter, daily work. There's lots of tools out there. Um, I would say that the most important thing is every single one of my projects, that's of any commercial importance is in CI. And uh, so in my business, we use a lot of GitHub. There are other tools. There's GitLab, there's you know Bitbucket. All these tools have it. And so GitHub Actions um, will take the, the code and build it and go ahead and run that bundler audit against it. And I actually have that as a nightly security job. So if bundler audit ever, there's a gem... So what Bundle Audit does is it checks our gem file, which is like our package.json in RubyLand, our, our gem file. It checks not only our dependencies, but our dependencies dependencies for known vulnerable versions. So not just, hey, they released a new version, but there is a CVE against this gem. And so that is a flag. And so not only do we run this tool, but I have my CI configured to run it automatically every night. That's a big help. Um, Brakeman um, is a is a static analysis tool. Um, there's a Brakeman Pro, but um, there are a few restrictions on running that in, say, as a service. Like, they want you to buy Brakeman Pro, but as an individual, you can run it locally or in your CI. And so that will actually scan the Ruby on Rails code base for common coding errors um, that... Um, lead to security problems. So that's our static analysis tool. So I feel like in a lot of other platforms, you have to reach for something like Sonar Cube or some commercial offering to get what we get basically for free and mature in the open source community in the Ruby and Rails ecosystem. Um, so those are the bread and butter of our sca- uh, on our dependency and scanning. Um, most Rails applications have a strong JavaScript component especially if you're doing a lot of fancy client and stuff. And uh, so Yarn and or NPM are both very common now. And so running Yarn audit or NPM audit on a nightly basis, along with Bundler audit that helps give us coverage in the JavaScript side. Um, and then uh, we on GitHub, we use a tool they provide. So this is an open source. It's a SaaS tool, um, not SaaS. I mean, software as a service that runs on their servers um, called uh, Dependabot. And what Dependabot does is it looks at our source code repository and it kind of does a little bit what Bundler what it does, um, but it actually creates pending pull requests uh, that change uh, to the newer version of the gem. And then that automatically kicks off the auto, the CI process. And so every morning, one of our devs checks in and takes a look at Dependabot's uh, recommended pull request. And if all the tests pass, we actually can merge and deploy that change within that day, which compared to an industry average of 38 days to make any update of any consequence to production is really remarkable um, uh, speed up. Um, And then sometimes Dependabot in our slack channel we 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 you know it's the little engine that could so it will try to upgrade to rails 6 and the test will fail and we we like virtually pat the pindabot on the shoulder and say that's so cute thanks for trying <laughs> uh, you know um, but but those are some of the tools i use on a regular basis but but the biggest takeaway i want you to hear is that we don't just run one tool we have a system in place to continuously integrate and run the tests and those tests passing is what lets us know we can ship to production. And, and the dream would be, um, not everyone's here yet, but the dream would be if one of your dependencies has a critical security vulnerability and there's a public um, um, vuln, um, that you would wake up to a notification on your phone that says, from the computer, it says, this update was available I ran all the tests, they all passed, and I deployed to production. Like before. So your first notice is that up production's been updated. And as a preview of this, one of my aforementioned state government clients the other day in a meeting said, Frank, you know what my favorite part about working with y'all is? When you email me and say there was this security vulnerability and it's already been patched, and then I see the news items about it. <laughs> that's cool. And so we're we're not quite turned the keys over to the machine yet, but that's the direction we're going. And um, there is one more tip I have. If you're working in Rails, join the security mailing list. And uh, very common, that early warning stuff, uh, one of the main... Uh, volunteers in the community is called, his name is Aaron Patterson. And Aaron um, is one of the core team members for Ruby on Rails. And he will, is often the one whose point for fixing security vulnerabilities and will release the patch multiple times. An email from Aaron to that list kicks us off to doing updates and then Bundler Audit and Dependabot get the news the next day when the actual CVE is published. And so that's a good way of staying ahead by at least a day before uh, the, uh, the news fully
0: breaks. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good tip to get a little bit of uh, early intel in the process about uh, potential vulnerabilities as they come out. Absolutely. So key takeaway then, we've got we've gone through a lot of different things in regards to ruby on rails what it is how to use some of the secure coding principles and things and we've talked about the benefits of the framework kind of wrapping this all up into uh you know kind of a some simple takeaways like what are the things that you would leave our audience with as far as the key takeaways and then maybe even a call to action something they could do with this info well
1: um I would say if you're a Rails developer, no, you absolutely have a leg up over people who've come from other programming disciplines in that the tools are right at your fingertips to do this extraordinarily well. Um, Embrace writing effective tests. I would say, a wonderful book to look at is called 99 bottles by Sandy Metz and Katrina Owens. There's a Ruby version and there's now a JavaScript version. I highly recommend that because it helps learn the thought processes of effectively writing tests and effectively refactoring software with the aid of tests. So I guess that's for everyone because lots of people write JavaScript too. Um, For people who are coming from an enterprise and think that Ruby is just some toy that's going around, away, it's going away, I respectfully disagree and think that you should consider why you think that and look at the enterprises that are built on top of it. Um, They never had... This is an open source platform written by people who got benefit out of it and contributed and built it. There's no marketing budget behind it. So if you think that the latest .NET is technologically superior just because you hear about it, I don't want to say anything bad about .NET. Don't hear me say that. But I'm saying as a computer scientist, look at the merits of the individual systems, not just the companies that have a financial interest in promoting their product as an enterprise solution. So Rails is here to stay, and it can be used to make very secure web applications. And then finally, um, if you look at the OWASP top 10 and some of the fundamental issues, Ruby on Rails have some of the best secure defaults that you can find Um, meaning it's way harder to create an insecure line of business crud application in rails than it is in other platforms that don't provide that same level of uh, convention over configuration
0: frank thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience with ruby on rails and you gave us a lot of really cool things to consider Um, from the overall perspective of kind of what, you know, all the different languages and and how Ruby on Rails fits in. Also some tactical things we can do from tools and from perspectives of of thinking about Ruby on Rails. So thanks for sharing that knowledge with us. And um, our audience, uh, I think, is going to get a lot out of this. So thanks very much for your time. Thank you. And I enjoyed our time together. Thanks for listening to the Application Security Podcast. You'll find the show on Twitter at AppSec Podcast or on the web at wwwsecurityjourneycom application security podcast. You can also find Chris on Twitter at Edgeroute and Robert at Robert Hurlbut. Remember, security is a journey, not a destination.